what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The department essentially fired him um, after he got caught up in a Michigan State Police undercover investigation. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part three of the story of Temujin Kenzu, known as Fred Freeman in 1986 when he was arrested for the murder of a man by the name of Scott Macklem, a crime he's always maintained he's innocent of. So as we know from our previous episodes, Scott Macklem was shot in the parking lot of a community college in Port Huron, Michigan in November of 1986. But just who was Scott Macklem? Well, apart from being the son of a local mayor, not a great deal is really known about him or who in fact he associated with. Temujin says from the investigations done by people in his camp, it could appear he was likely involved with some unsavoury characters and that drugs were potentially involved. Now, you know, obviously I don't think this person should have been killed for any reason, better yet drug dealing or drug selling. But it looks like he was involved with some very, very, very shady people. It's not me trying to demean the character of this victim. I am not justifying anything that happened to this man by whatever bad things he was doing in his life. Hello. Hello, is that Mr. Proctor? Yes, it is. How are you? I'm good, sir. This is uh, Jack Lawrence, the journalist from Australia. As I mentioned at the start of this story back in episode one, Temujin Kenzu has a multitude of people backing him. People who have spent decades looking into his story and investigating this case. One of those is Bill Proctor. My name is Bill Proctor. I'm retired from WXYZ Television in Detroit, Michigan. It's the ABC affiliate here. And... uh, I was a reporter, anchor, investigator over a 33-year career. Bill says that he was first contacted by a private investigator who was hired by Temujin and his then-wife, Amica, 
who has since sadly passed away. The private investigator Al Woodside had apparently been doing his best to try and get some sort of media attention on this case. And it would seem Bill was the only one willing to take a look. So he came to the station one day and um, brought a, a bunch of information. Uh, the information from discussion to a few paragraphs and maybe a bundle ended up a box. And by the time it was over, he wanted me to go through as much of it as I could, if not all of it. And uh, he essentially played tour guide for a number of months. He explained uh, the various shortcomings of the government's case. The shortcomings demonstrated themselves as flat-out misconduct, if not criminality, that uh, police had lied, that um, uh, the prosecutor had accepted bad information, uh, a jailhouse snitch had come to the table. I mean, it was really just a, just a whole bucket full of mess. Bill has not only spent decades looking into this case, but has also taken cameras into the prison to do a sit-down interview with Temujin and created the documentary Justice Incarcerated, the Frederick Freeman story. I was on kind of a run-and-gun schedule as a general assignment reporter and never had that kind of time. But fortunately, I took the time, I worked weekends, I read the information, and when it came time to present to my management, and we had a lot of work to do, but this was going to be a really great story, um, I was fortunate enough to get them to listen and to give me a green light. And the green light was months in its development. We were quite some time going to a number of prisons, uh, getting all kinds of information that was important to the case before we ended up putting it on the air in 1995. So two full years, or at least the months between 1993 and 1995, was the time it took to put the various elements together. And we were very fortunate because the cameras that I took inside of the Michigan prison system at that time to interview Fred, to interview the jailhouse snitch, to go back and to do a polygraph examination inside the prison system with cameras and microphones was shut down by Governor John Engler as soon as word got around the state that with the time allowed inside prisons, real journalists were doing some investigative work that made the criminal justice system look very bad. And I think that was one of the reasons why uh, the conservative John Engler shut down access. And after I got in there with those cameras, all kinds of major journalists and uh, networks around the country could not get into uh, Michigan's prison systems with cameras or recorders. It was shut down. Uh, Barbara Walters was even uh, rejected. You know, their networks went to court and failed because I guess Engler apparently had locked it down. So that was one of the ugly results of starting to work on this case. There are many others, many, many other ugly results. Uh, but that was a situation back then. He says when it comes to Scott Macklem again, there's not much that is known about him or who he was associating with. However, an informant did come forward and suggest that drugs could have been involved. Talking to Temujin, um, he's of the opinion that Scott may have you know, been involved in drugs or, or something like that. Did you ever come across anything, any of that sort of information during your investigation? Um, I've heard it um because I literally held in my hand on our visit to the Port Huron Police Department four vials of blood that allegedly came from Scott Macklin. 
I don't think those were ever tested to determine if he was consuming drugs. Uh, yes, we have a source who told us from the inside that yes, Scott Macklin was a drug dealer, that yes, he had debts, that yes, he had upset some people. But you see, even that, I'm, I'm not feeling strong enough about to think that it was something in the drug trade that sure. got him killed. Because people in that business don't do something that bold, especially yeah. if, if somebody is still trying to be a player. If you're a player, you go back to your source. If you're a player, you, 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 try, to, you try to fix whatever a bad debt or a bad act that took place. I mean, there was no indication that Scott was talking to the police, so why kill him? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm troubled about, you know, that part of the scenario, yet uh, we do have a person who is in prison even now uh, who has told us, not necessarily in affidavit form, but certainly in statements to the investigative team that I put together at one point, and they were very credible because they were federal agents in their history, private investigators, and they all managed to spend time with our source on the inside of prison, and yes, he seems to think that he was with Scott the day before he was killed, and that he was targeted, uh, even that person who tells us as the source that he knows who did it. Uh, the real bottom line is uh, his claim is that he was approached first to kill Scott Macklin, and for some reason he didn't take the job. Wow. Bill says over the years, this informant has gone quiet on them and efforts to contact him have fallen on deaf ears. However, he says that he will reach out again on my behalf to see if he might be willing to speak with us. Well, sir, investigations. Hello, sir. This is Jack Lawrence, the podcast host from uh, Australia. How are you? Oh, good, Shankar. Thank you very much for your interest in this case. Another individual who has also been a long-time supporter of Temujin, as well as someone who has and is still looking into this case, is in fact a former police officer from the same office that conducted the investigation against Temujin. Oh, my name is Herb Walser. Uh, I was hired by the Poirier Police Department in 1974 as a cadet. And I was with the department for 31 years. Um, in 2005, I retired uh, as Detective Lieutenant. Herb was working the day of the murder back in 1986, but was never actually involved in any way with the investigation itself. He says at the time, he just assumed it was another guilty person claiming to be innocent. However, before I retired, I would see articles periodically in the uh, uh, Detroit newspapers and the Port Huron Times Herald uh, talking about this case and how that this person that was convicted, Fred Freeman, was claiming that he was uh, innocent. And I'm very proud of my time at the Poirier Police Department. The Poirier Police Department is a wonderful department. Uh, them and the city of Poirier were great to me. Um, and when he, this Fred Freeman would uh, say that he was innocent, I just had a hard time uh, believing that. Eventually, Herb would retire, and a couple of years later would hear Bill Proctor investigating journalist on a local radio station discussing the case. 
And there was something that Bill Proctor said during that interview that really piqued my interest uh, because it conflicted with what I remember being said in the office the day of the murder. So I reached out to Bill Proctor by email, and he responded back to me. And he set me up with an appointment to meet with Fred Freeman's wife, Amico, uh, who has since passed away from cancer. But Amico would come to my home and bring trial transcripts, uh, case documents. And, you know, after the first couple times talking to her, again, I just figured, hey, this is a guilty person in prison that's trying to get out. But the more I read the transcripts and the documents from court, the more red flags just kept coming up and up. And and uh, after a few months, uh, there was very little doubt in my mind that, that he was innocent. He had nothing to do with this murder. As a former detective himself, Herb comes back to the biggest glaring issue he says is facing this investigation, or lack thereof in regards to the victim himself. One of the most important things that was looked uh, over or not looked over is uh, uh, Scott Macklin, the victim, and his background. Um, there's nothing in the police report about uh, what led up to the murder. Um, what was Scott's activities, even the night before that he was murdered, uh, where was he? Who was who was he with? Uh, none of that information is in the police report. And unfortunately, uh, the investigators over the years that have attempted to talk to the Macklin family or anyone close to the Macklin family uh, have refused to speak to an investigator. So even up to this point, we know very little about Scott Macklin. Now, what we do know from the police record and the minimal investigation that was done later was that there were two men pursuing Scott for quite a while. And they actually knew where he worked, which, of course, I could never have known. I'm living in the UP. I've never met this guy. I sure as hell could have known where he was working. But he worked in a men's clothing store, apparently. And these two people knew that. The first report says these individuals came into the store and they confronted Scott. There was a heated argument. And then Scott kind of challenged them to a physical altercation and that the men left. But the, re- the second report says they came back in later looking for Scott. And it said now he was afraid of them and he was hiding in the back of the store. So for the listeners, of course, once the police confirmed these men were not me or my, you know, my at that time roommate, Tom, they lost complete interest. So a man is murdered brutally at a college and two people are pursuing him right before his death into his workplace violently threatening him and stalking him and the police john bounds again the dirty cop and the prosecutor robert cleo the dirty prosecutor didn't even want to know who these guys were they made no attempt to find these people once it wasn't me it didn't matter so because of the severe lack of just any investigation into the crime itself or the victim, there is really no concrete evidence to help work out what exactly happened that morning. And this is the mayor's son. And what probably happened, and by the way, the prosecutor at that time was running for the Michigan Attorney General's office, which is a very powerful political position here in the States. And um, I think that he went to the mayor and said, hey, you know what? I got this. I'm going to take care of this, Gary. He sent the dirty cop out to the scene, not a team, 
one dirty cop who'd never done a homicide and who'd been fired the year prior for mob involvement in a crooked numbers running operation in a business, lost all of his appeals and then somehow got reinstated and was given this case and he'd never done a homicide. Didn't secure the crime scene, didn't do photos, didn't do forensics. He went out there to clean up that scene. Probably get the drugs in, in, gym, in Scott's gym bag. And um, at that point, the EMS guys were allowed to come in. And of course, Scott died uh, probably from a denial of care, if anything else, because he didn't die right away. He never made any utterances. He never identified who the person was that shot him. But there's no question from the prosecution's own witnesses. There were multiple people there. And just so everyone knows, none of them identified me. None of those prosecution witnesses that saw the running, the chasing, all that stuff, none of them identified me either. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So let's take a look at this Detective John Bounds. Now, as I mentioned in our last episode, there seems to be some major glaring question marks over the conduct of this detective. Again, I spoke with Bill Proctor, the investigative journalist, about Detective Bounds. Going back to this, the crime scene in itself, again, um, there were potential reports. Obviously, we've got, you know, Detective Bounds first on scene um, and supposedly a gym bag was there, but then all of a sudden wasn't there. Do you know much about that? I don't know anything about it. Um, It wouldn't surprise me if uh, John Bounds uh, somehow disappeared that bag, if money or drugs were in it. I don't know if it was known how the system might want to protect the image of the victim at the time, uh, or if there were valuables that simply ended up in Bounds' custody. I really don't know anything about that. Fair enough. I can say it wouldn't surprise me. So when you say it wouldn't surprise you when it came to Detective Bounds, was he known for for doing things a little bit uh, uh, on the off? Well, the, the department essentially fired him. Um, after he got caught up in a Michigan State Police undercover investigation, essentially participating in the illegal gambling, um, hanging out with uh, known members of the mafia. Yeah, it, it, he was kind of generally a bad actor. Uh, a, a guy, I guess we call them thugs with badges, who essentially thought he was above it all and did whatever he wanted. And, um, you know, there, there are other people who have talked to me about his misconduct on drug arrests and that kind of thing, but once again, it's not verified, and people making statements can't provide me proofs. 
But no, it would not surprise me anything that uh, came to light about John Bounds. The incident Bill refers to here is the one I mentioned in our previous episode. In the court documents that are freely available online, it talks about between March and December of 1981, a special agent for the Michigan Attorney General's office conducting an undercover operation of a Port Huron motel called the Midway Inn. This investigation was in response to reports that sports betting, bookmaking and high-stakes poker games were being conducted there. John Bounds was observed on several occasions within the motel taking part in gambling as well as associating with known criminals. Following this investigation, John Bounds was suspended without pay and on March 8th of 1982, the acting police chief terminated his employment for conduct unbecoming of a police officer and for neglect of duty. John Bounds would go on to try to secure unemployment benefits and after a number of hearings and appeals whereby he would admit to being at the bar and knowing of the gambling and participating, stating that he believed the activities were common knowledge and being that he was off duty, he wasn't obligated to report it, he would subsequently fail in receiving any of those benefits as ultimately a court would determine the following, and I quote, The claimant's conduct casts a cloud over his ability to maintain public trust evidenced a willful disregard for the law and undermined his ability to function as a police officer. So how on earth does he not only come back from that, but ends up being a detective on a high-profile murder case? Well, in our system, even someone, a fired cop, can get a lawyer and see if he can get the job back. And once again, another interesting tidbit about this overall case, guess who one of his defenders was? The same defense attorney that was representing uh, Fred Freeman, Timogen Kinsu. Yes, you heard that correctly. The attorney that helped John Bounds get back into the police force was also the man who would become the defense attorney on John Bounds' first murder investigation. Honestly, you just couldn't make this shit up. Oh, my God. Tell us a bit about this attorney that you ended up with who yeah. was a public defender and once was a prosecutor, I believe. Right. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm desperate, and I'm trying to get my story out like I am right now to anybody that will listen, you know. And, and like I said, they wouldn't even interview me. Mm. So all I can think is I have to get a lawyer and, and you know, maybe he can go intervene and, and say, hey, this girl's crazy. Because I actually thought Crystal was the murderer at that time for the longest time. I, she was so nuts, I thought she was the killer. This, these cops are like, hey, you need to call Dave Dean. Now, I, don't, I didn't know I was being fed this guy. This was all part of a setup. I didn't know that. I'm not from this area. I don't know anybody down there. And I'm desperate. So this one Jewish lawyer comes to see me. I don't remember his, uh, his name now, but I remember he, had, he was wearing a star of David. And he wants $50,000. And he's showing me these clippings, and he's telling me I'm going to die in prison. And I'm like, buddy... I live on welfare in a $200 a month rental farmhouse in the woods. I don't have $50,000. I don't have $50. And um, he goes, well, then I guess you're going to die in prison. And this jerk just leaves. Okay. So the cops 
they know what's, they know I'm desperate. And so they're like, Hey, you need to call this Dave Dean guy. And they give me this number and I call him and, and he agrees to come see me. When Fred was arrested, police said, Oh, you know, you should get this guy, Dave Dean. He's, he's a real, he's a great attorney. He was almost fed this guy as, as someone he should take. Yes. And I really don't know how that came about. Um, you don't know if the policeman who made the suggestion told him <laughs> based on the suggestion maybe from the prosecutor's office or told him about the guy because uh, he was one of the cops who had the uh, the lawyer's business card and said, you know, uh, I, I know this guy, you ought to check him out. And maybe uh, that particular police officer had an agreement with David Dean that if he got him a, a client, there may be some undercover money as a thank you or some other kind of gratuity. I don't know. Uh, I really don't know how that came about, but yes, it was suspicious. Another suspicious element of the overall situation that uh, Fred was guided to the guy who was uh, so diminished in his capacity to, to defend anybody. Uh, his, his drug addiction had gone on for the 10 years, um, 1980 to 1990, which covers uh, the trial um, that sent Fred Freeman to prison. What I didn't know for the listeners is that this scumbag had just had a cocaine conviction. He was a crackhead. He was on probation for cocaine use, right in front of the police, by the way, snorting it in a park. His probation oversight officer was my judge. His best buddy was John Bounds. In fact, they only went to high school together. He was John Bounds' attorney on his corruption charges. And he worked for the man that was prosecuting me, Robert Cleland, until his cocaine addiction got so bad, they made him quit. And so in 1984, he quit working for the prosecutor's office and became a public defender and a local attorney who had been accused of stealing money from law firms. This guy was banging hookers. He, he had a bar where he was doing cocaine deals, selling stolen property. This guy was like the scum of the earth. I don't know any of this. He comes to see me and he's like, hey, uh, you're going to have a million dollar lawsuit and I'm going to get you out of here. And I know everybody in town and I'm really connected. And I was very excited, like, oh, great. Yeah. He believes me. I looked at this. There's no evidence. So I was, you know, a young, dumb idiot, genius or not. And um, I was willing to trust this guy. Now, what I didn't know was this was all a setup. Uh, again, for the listeners, and I have all the records, this man in no time at all had gone into my storage bins and was stealing every single thing Michelle and I owned. And I have all the actual records from the SureGuard company where he did this. He forged power of attorney documents. I have his handwritten notes to his friend, Gary Larson, to go in and clean out my storage facilities. So everything that I had, though it wasn't of great, great value, they took. Leather jackets, watches, you know, martial arts equipment, my guitar, whatever. They, well, just just they took it all. Yeah, they were selling it all for drugs. While I'm in jail, he's telling me that I'm going to get out. He's stealing everything I own and selling it for drugs. And I have the whole timeline of these thefts. So this... This man knew I was never getting out. There was no way he was going to let me get out and have me find out he stole everything. So the fix was in from the very beginning. In no time, he's stealing my things while I'm in the jail. And he's pretending to defend me. Then one day he asked me for drugs. He's like, hey, um, I know you don't have any money, but you're like, you're a rock and roll singer guy, you know, and your friends say you're in these bands and they like to party and hey, do you know, can you get me some Coke? And I'm like, hey, uh, listen, jerk, uh, I'm a health nut and I do green drinks and I don't use drugs. If you do, that's your business. But uh, to be honest, I really don't want a junkie for a lawyer. And he's like, no, no, I'm cool. I'm a professional. You know, I just like to with the girls sometimes I'm like, yeah, OK, I understand. Great. No problem. But I don't use drugs. 
So anyways, then I, that was like a big red flag for me, but still I never thought he was stealing my stuff and selling it for dope. I actually have affidavits from the dealers that he sold all my stuff to with detailed descriptions of the things he sold to them in his bar for drugs, my stuff. That's how in depth this is. So anyways, he's doing no work. He's not calling my witnesses. So Michelle is doing everything. My little pregnant girlfriend is calling witnesses, finding documents, trying to figure out how to do her own legal work. She gets a, a little part-time job in his office and right away she sees what he's doing and she's coming to visit me and she's like, hey, he's getting high, he's drunk, he's acting crazy, he's slurring his speech. So the last we heard from Michelle, she had been dealing with a SWAT team and detectives ransacking her home as John Bounds had a yelling match with Temujin over the phone. Well, once they had left and had Temujin in custody, Michelle would pack up their home and move to Port Huron. So once everything happened and I got to talk to him, they had arrested him. They had him in jail in Port Huron. They told me um, to go ahead and pack everything up. There was another girl that he had dated and she came up and helped me pack the pack the house up and everything and helped me get things into a U-Haul trailer. And um, we lo- we she and I loaded everything onto the U-Haul trailer and into the car and um, drove down to Port Huron. I moved our stuff down to Port Huron. And... Um, that was, I don't know how long it was, like after the phone call, after the police showed up and everything, but um, we moved down there because I was put in touch with um, Dave Dean, who was his lawyer at the time. That was the lawyer that they appointed for him. Yeah. And um, Dave told me to come on down because he had uh, somebody he knew or he owned the apartment or something. Some He had a hookup for me to be able to rent an apartment down there yeah. while this was all going on. What what was your take on him when you were around his office? Because obviously there's um, there's talk about his uh, drug issues and all the rest of it. Did you ever see any weird stuff happening in that office? Yeah, I saw his. He he was very often uh, had you know bloodshot eyes, and he was very just you could tell uh, depending on the time of day that I went. Not necessarily in the morning, but definitely in the afternoon toward the evening. You know, he's not falling over drunk like you know on the ground or anything, but you could tell he's definitely had something. Yeah, right. <laughs> definitely had had bloodshot eyes and that kind of thing. And uh, but he and I didn't have as much contact. I mean, we did at first, but. More so it was the secretary and that kind of thing, you know, when I was helping with paperwork. Temujin says that the work his defence attorney did on his case was essentially nothing. Failing to not only follow up on witnesses, but also look into potential evidence that could help clear him. They're pretending they're trying to get me out of here, but they're not. They're lying about witnesses. They're not telling me about people that have alibi stuff. There was a lot of physical evidence that produced that proved where I was at. They didn't go get any of it. You know, uh, there was an actual blotter that a real estate agent wrote my name on. There's a police report admitting it says there's a blotter with my name and it's got my name. It says 12 o'clock noon, the day of the murder. And the woman said he was in my office here asking about a rental space for a business because I want to start a health food business. I'm on that blotter at noon, the day of the murder. That's three hours after the murder, about, let's say, 460 miles away at a minimum in the, at the end of Escanaba. And he didn't even try to get the blotter from the girl. So there's a, fortunately there's a report proving the blotter existed, but he didn't even get the blotter to show to the jury. So uh, I started getting these little conflicts with him, like, hey, you know, you're not even calling my alibi witnesses. I have another girlfriend, uh, Cheryl Reinhardt, still a friend to this day. I saw her the day of the murder. He does nothing to bring her in. I saw her friend that was with her, Gina Dubord. He does nothing to bring her in. 
So I, I start to suspect he's really not trying to defend me. This is who I had for a lawyer. This is all that I had, all that I had to turn to. Well, then they started torturing Michelle. And I mean torturing Michelle, and she will happily tell you about this, um, including telling her she was going to lose her baby, police knocking on her door, going to her neighbor's houses, uh, her neighbor's doors, and saying, you've got a woman protecting a murderer living next door to you. And uh, then they, we had two German Shepherd puppies. They took our dogs. They killed our dogs. This is a matter of record. They murdered our beautiful little puppies. And that was it for her. She's like, I can't take this anymore. And she fled and she ran to her mother's house. Yes, yet again, this is in fact true. The authorities would remove the couple's pet dogs from the home. And when Michelle went to collect them from the impound, she would be told that they had been destroyed. I ended up renting the apartment and um, that's where it, it was the Port Huron police that took the dogs or whoever, whoever it was. It was either the police or the Humane Society or whatever. At some point you were interviewed again by detectives, is, is that right? That they came back and speak with you again? Yeah, they came back a couple of times into my apartment asking me questions again intimidating so it was the two of them and the one the one was really mean and intimidating and the other one was trying to be kind of nice it was kind of like you know one was nice one wasn't yeah exactly exactly and they they uh interviewed me again and just trying they're trying to get me to um lie and say that he did something i think they're trying to they're just trying to pull something out of me that i absolutely was not going to do you know i told them again and again um you know what happened and i've said it for 36 years now, you know, and it's, it, it was really scary. You know, it was a, a very scary time. And, and eventually it got uh, got too much for you, of course, because, as it would, uh, and you sort of disappeared and went back to your parents. Is that right? I did. I talked to my mom. My mom and I were very close. We talked on the phone and she just really wanted to see her grandchild. And she just said, you know, why don't you come home? And, and I was I was just really terrified of just everything that was going on. You know, I was really scared. And uh, so I did. I, I went back home. So did you ever get a call from um, Temujin's uh, attorney at the time to, to talk to you about what had happened and possibly going, you know, getting up on a trial, etc.? No. Uh-uh. Before I went home, I t- was talking to him almost daily when I was in the apartment. But like once I left, I left. Yeah. I didn't I didn't talk to him. He never called me. He never contacted me. Nothing. So did you at- attend much of Temujin's trial? No, none of it. You have one minute remaining. And that's all we have time for. But coming up in our next episode, Temujin Kenzu goes to trial. But with multiple alibi witnesses all placing him over 400 miles away from this crime, just how will the prosecution say that he managed to commit this crime? They literally, their first theory, and I want listeners to know that this is true and this is in the transcripts, their first theory, get ready everybody, was that I teleported. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.